Dave, welcome back. Yes, back from vacation, tanned, well-rested, feeling great. That's nice. That's that. Well, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I got I got one of those. Remember we talked about that knee band, the mm-hmm. like little uh, exercise thing. I, I got one, um, and just figuring it's like I don't want to drop a ton of money on uh, an exercise band as somebody who doesn't isn't like a super duper exercise freak and all that. So I figure I'll try it out, see if I like it. If I want to upgrade, I can. And um, one of the things I was curious about is I was wondering like how much it tells whether you're you know what your activity is and all that and i and i wore it while i was playing my drum set and it and it said i went like five miles or something and you know like it it actually picked up that my hand movement from playing the drums as a uh, as like uh movement so that was kind of interesting it's an interesting false positive but uh, i guess exercise nonetheless so when i was using the uh, fitbit you could actually go back and uh basically annotate the telemetry so um if uh so for you know so say you were drumming for 45 minutes um Mm -hmm. you could actually go back and say like from this period to this period i was drumming or i was pushing a stroller or whatever it is and so and then it would like adjust the calorie consumption or whatever to uh to match the activity huh huh yeah it was pretty it was pretty clever and and actually for a good time go to the fitbit site and take a look at all of the possible defined act, all the, like the, all mm-hmm. the defined activities. Um, cause it was like super specific. It was like walking a tiger with a leather leash, you know, wearing <laughs> one shoe. Like it was, but like, it doesn't it, detect that. Like, like it doesn't, um, like you train it that, Oh, I was playing drums and then it could detect that pattern and then apply that to drums next time. I don't know. Or, you know, or somewhere there's like a government agency that's got, you know, a comprehensive catalog of calories consumed per hour for a given activity. And they're just using that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, for like, you can, you can go in and annotate it after the fact, but can you train it to detect certain movements as associated with a particular activity? Oh, I see what you're saying. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it was that smart. Yeah. Cause that's, that's one of the things that, yeah, you know, having the, to be able to record, oh, I ate a cheeseburger, I ate whatever, you know, it's just all that manual data entry is just uh, hard, uh, hard to do, um, or mm-hmm. it's not fun. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's right. That's right. That, need that, to that's be, be tracked better. I think that's what we need. Well, I got a number of companies that would be happy to track you better. Yeah. Yeah. Probably on this show, we'll be talking about that. So how, <laughs> how are right. you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm missing my family. I haven't seen my family in quite some time. Yeah. Um, actually, since my birthday, which was, which happened since the last time we were recorded, I think. So yeah. uh, I'm now 40, if you can uh, hear the decrepitness in my voice. You sound um, old. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was cool. I, I am, I don't know, yeah. I am crotchety. A little bit, a little bit more annoyed. A little like feeling protective of my lawn, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, crazy kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, I went up to New York uh, with, uh, with my wife and child, got to spend some time with some friends. Um, and then I went off to work, uh, and she went down to, uh, with her in-laws, um, uh, down in South Carolina. And, uh, so basically I've been communicating with them, uh, just because it's, it's hard to kind of get on the phone when you're like chasing a toddler around and I'm working and stuff like that. So we've basically been communicating with like photos. Um, and so I'm, I'm collecting this trove of adorable photos of my child on the beach. Um, and kind of during conference calls, just kind of staring longingly at them, uh, wishing I was crying, yeah. crying. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, uh, anyway, but I'm going to fix that tomorrow. I'm going to go, I'm uh, going to go visit them on my way to the Red Hat Summit. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, uh, about which, and we'll talk more about the summit uh, later on the episode. Um, anyway, Dave, what are we uh, what are we talking about? Oh, it's a jam packed episode this time. We're talking about OMB. We're talking about Uber, Slack, GitHub, OpenStack, Docker, uh, the slow motion password Armageddon, and our favorite OpenShift customers. Nice. Yeah this uh, this this is a big fat show this week because. Uh, um, in our, in our little Slack room that we had set up, uh, we have a little robot, uh, that makes it really easy to submit suggestions to the show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are some consequences to that. You make it easy yep. to contribute and, uh, suddenly you get a lot of contributions, right? Um, so yeah. anyway, 
So for so what will happen is this is going to turn into a, a two hour episode unless people listen, unless people will uh, provide suggestions, which will result in uh, shorter episodes. Yes. So it's a virtuous cycle. We have to. It'll correct itself. Uh, yeah. It'll correct itself. Yeah. We have to. Uh, we have to destroy Roman in order to save it. Right. Yes. That's yes. yeah. Um, so if folks want to see uh, the bounty that is the the show notes for this week, uh, where, where should they go? Where should they go, Dave? They need to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G is in Gunner, show.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the cornucopia on the cutting room floor uh, this week includes uh, that you've probably already heard about it. This uh, Business Week devoted an entire issue to what to the question of what is code, um, written by Paul Ford, who we've mentioned on the show before. Uh, this is just an extraordinary explanation of software, uh, its culture. It's a really nice. It's the kind of thing that I, in fact, I did send to my mom, um, hmm. who like doesn't, you know, isn't plugged into kind of software culture. It was like, a, it's a nice little explainer. Hmm. Um, nice. And we got a, whatever, what else? We got a open source Trello clones on there. And, uh, and I found some guy who uh, rendered a map of the Paris Metro, but he did it using uh, Git branches. Nice. So he did a bunch of like git commits and branches and uh, and then you go to the project on GitHub and the way they map the branches out, it's a map of the Paris Metro. Pretty clever. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, let's see. All right, so Dave, you're back from vacation and I yep. imagine you got some you got some resolutions around uh, around meeting discipline. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I did uh, on my vacation at the beach was I enjoyed the uh, Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson mm-hmm. and. Uh, cool things in there but the, one of the one of my favorite parts was uh uh whenever he was looking to buy um uh, uh lucas uh the lucas films uh part of the, like their rendering stuff which ultimately became pixar um and so he went into the negotiations and everything and um the cfo of lucas films uh wanted to like put steve jobs in his place and, and saying that hey we're going to set up what the pecking order is and and I'm going to be the top dog here. So for this meeting, and so he set it up with everybody except for Steve Jobs. He told them that look, when it, you know, we're going to have the meeting, I will be late for the meeting, and whenever I walk in, uh, you know, everybody waits for me to get started, and I walk in and we start the meeting. That's going to show that I'm in charge. And mm-hmm. so um, they go and they have the meeting, and uh, everybody goes sits down. Steve Jobs sits down. He starts a meeting. <laughs> that's great and it winds up the cfo he walked in late to the meeting and everybody like turned around and looked at him and he looked like a total doofus so. <laughs> that's wonderful that's wonderful yeah. yeah yeah so don't be late for meetings uh lesson learned yep yeah yeah no that's that's valuable so it was good you enjoyed the book yeah yeah i really liked it there were some other anecdotes in there but but uh we could talk about them some other time they're just hilarious so the, so and the other thing I'm hearing is like how toxic an environment does it have to be in order to like have to play those like petty games in order to like establish hierarchy um yes. that's, that's like a poisonous environment I wouldn't want to work speaking of poisonous environments uber um <laughs> is yeah. uber is a garbage company um I feel very comfortable saying this so uh you so know they expanded calling garbage <laughs> if only they were so useful if only they yeah. were that useful um, so they expanded into China yeah. and, uh, uh, a lot of their drivers are aggrieved, um, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so they they were organizing a protest. So Uber sends out a message to its driver saying, listen, don't go to these protests. We forbid you from attending these protests. And the way we're going to enforce this is we are going to use the GPS tracker on your phone through our app because we know where you are. And if you show up at this protest, you're fired. And what's funny here is it, like I saw the the thing in the show notes about that, about um, telling drivers not to attend protests and it's enforced with GPS tracking. And I, I saw the 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 link and I thought that, oh, this is the Chinese government telling people not to attend the protest and they're using GPS tracking. But it's not. It's Uber. That's right. That's right. Yes. yes. And the fact that you... Uh, the, the fact that the actions of Uber were confusingly similar to the People's Republic uh, tell you pretty much everything you need to know about Uber. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Terrible people. Terrible people. Um, <clears throat> speaking of optimizing ad experiences. Yes. 
Yeah, we haven't talked about that in a while. Um, have you ordered anything from Amazon lately? Uh, no, I'm forbidden from ordering anything from Amazon uh, because my wife does not care for the company. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's too bad. Or I guess good for her. So I, I did. <laughs> uh, I guess depending upon your views, I don't know. Um, but the, the thing that they're starting to do now is they're starting to put advertisements on the shipping boxes. It surprises me that it took them that long to figure out that that was something where they could make money on. Yeah, and I, I like, I saw the article that I, I, I put a link in the show notes to it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great, and I'll probably won't see that. And lo and behold, like two days later, I get this box from Amazon, and it has the, I, I forget what the next the movie is that they're advertising, but it's uh, instead of it being a plain uh, brown cardboard box, it has the the it's basically a wrap uh, promoting that movie. It's pretty smart, I gotta say. Pretty smart. Yeah, and if that helps me get free shipping and all that, that's great. You know, whatever. I, I think that's probably a good, maybe a good use of advertising. But there, were, people are saying too that they they worry that um, if it turns into like a NASCAR sort of box where it has like all these <laughs> logos on it, people are just going to tune out even more and throw it out. But at least right now, it's it has a novelty to it because you don't ordinarily see that. Yeah, 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 I can see that. And I can also imagine it being like an event, right? Because so many people touch that company. It's a little bit like when a movie promotes itself through uh, Happy Meal toys, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, suddenly like for two months, all the Happy Meal toys are, you know, associated with thus and such uh, Disney or Pixar movie. Um, that makes it like an event and like a shared experience. I can imagine uh, having kind of similar impact or... Uh, making the advertising that much more valuable by being like, I'm going to buy out Amazon in August, right? And I'm yep. going to wrap it up in my movie poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, or you can imagine around Christmas time, you have uh, all these boxes starting to come in and, and it's like people trying to upsell you for whatever, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, timely, like Valentine's Day, right? So I'm going to buy yeah. up January, so I'm, I'm top of mind for the 14th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So, it's gonna, so, did, uh, so did Lauren go with you on vacation? Yep, totally. So it was amazing. She like just like went like busted her butt the whole year through school. Um, had finished school on Friday, and we were on like on a plane on Saturday. Spent the whole time, you know, on vacation. We come back uh, Saturday. She had like Sunday around the house, and then Monday she started up at at NASA for her uh, NASA Glenn for her summer uh, internship. Nice, nice. Yep. So what's what's she working on over there? Uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, and and they NASA actually already wrote a blog post about welcoming her and one of the other interns back, which is pretty awesome. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Once once again, her 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 press agent strikes again. She said yes, yes, and and also compare NASA as an employer to Uber as an employer. Um, so yeah, as companies you want to work for, that was really yeah. nice of them. You know, they didn't have to do a blog post welcoming her back. Um, but that was, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that is great. That is great. Yep. Yep. And then she also got, uh, an article published, uh, in the Slack blog, uh, too. So, um, she talks about how she uses uh, Slack with her robotics team. So, uh, I'll put a oh, link cool. to the show notes there. Yep. No, oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and so, so Dave, we're kind of new, we're kind of like newly converted Slack enthusiasts. Um, I guess we're probably about two years behind the cool kids, but, um, so how are you, how are you doing Slack on, on your Linux box? Are you just using the web browser or? Yeah, I, I'm, I was using a web browser and it was like, well, should I, you know, but it's, it's an explicit thing that you need to think to like open up or, you know, or you make that part of your home tabs. Um, and ultimately, that's what I did. But there's one thing that you pointed me to is a thing called Plaid Chat, which is, uh, I guess it's just a, a node uh, wrapper for a web browser that, that you could log into Slack and have your Slack instances in there. And I thought it was okay. But the thing that really was interesting to me was that uh, RHEL doesn't include uh, node uh, by default, uh, Node.js. Mm -hmm. However, um, we provide a thing called Red Hat Software Collections, and we just came out with Red Hat Software Collections 2.0. I was able to um, enable that channel, pull down the Node RPMs, uh, try out the uh, uh, Plaid Chat, and it it worked great. It was uh, you know it it didn't ultimately Plaid Chat wasn't for me, so I, I removed it all. But it was a great experience of just the uh, 
the Red Hat software collection is just working like butter. It was, it was just totally beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, if, if, if you've ever complained about the age of like the Ruby or the PHP or the Perl that we ship inside a, a copy of RHEL, um, definitely mm -hmm. check out software collections because I think we've licked this problem. I think we fixed yep. it. Yep. Speaking of problems getting fixed, uh, man, the OpenStack market. Yep, got some consolidation going on. Got some serious consolidation. I mean, it's uh, there aren't a lot. There's not a lot on the shelves anymore. Um, so Cisco bought Piston, um, and then IBM bought uh, Bluebox. Uh, which, doing some quick math here, I think that leaves Mirantis and Red Hat and the OEMs like you know IBM, Cisco, HP, and friends as like the last standing OpenStack distros. Well, or commercial providers, like you all. Or commercial say, providers, yeah. I should say. Yeah, yeah. That's right. like the garden people just, you know, or the, the open source uh, .org folks just pulling stuff down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and, as, and in fact, for both of those hires, Piston and Blue Box, um, you know, it was Cisco and IBM, so like they weren't particularly interested in the software. Um, mostly it was just people are starved for uh, OpenStack talent. Yeah. Um, just kind of, there's only so many people in the world who uh, know how to know how to put that stuff together. Um, yep. So... Yeah, pretty interesting. It'll be to, now that the consolidation is kind of winding down. It'll be interesting to see kind of how the battle lines get drawn. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh, and uh, speaking of battle lines, uh, <laughs> did you see this Docker backlash? This uh, yeah. boycott Docker. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a little bit like the boycott Novell uh, website in that it's a kind of furious and crudely, crudely, crudely done. Um, mm -hmm. So it looks like a hand done. HTML page like circa let's say like circa 1996 um, yeah. and it's a, a very impassioned indictment of docker as a technology um, and the upshot is that docker does docker creates a bunch of problems and you should just be using VMs instead I don't know. so so what do you think Dave is that was it compelling for you was it a persuasive no no but and and so whenever yeah, I, I think when people have those like highly emotionally charged sort of things, it makes them over. It's really hard to take somebody's message as seriously, um, and because mm -hmm. I've seen very similar things with System D, uh, where you know it's like it's just people just freaking out like the world is coming to an end and all that. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, in in good news, in like technology advancement news, uh, did you see the uh, this congressman actually submitted a pull request uh, for uh, uh, to the Fatara repository on GitHub? No, no. So uh, what what is a uh, Fatara? Yeah, so Fatara is this uh, kind of this is like inside baseball government. Uh, so this is like government IT reform mm -hmm. uh, law, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and so a congressman is um, <laughs> really cool, like submitted a pull request and this is happening very frequently the uh the folks at the 18f agency inside gsa um they do this kind of thing all the time where um they actually have like hr documents and stuff up on github and if people want to make changes they submit a pull request and then mm. discuss it and so it's actually like uh, uh, defining policy in the same way that you would define source code, which is like mm -hmm. a really intriguing idea. I think it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, anyway, so seeing that actually spread to not just like policy or kind of an internal, you know, internal handbook, um, but up to like, you know, actually like managing the crafting and implementation of laws, I think it's yeah. really intriguing. I think it's really cool. Yeah. So you can have lobbyists do pull requests uh, for how they want the legislation to look, right? Yes. And, and yeah, then you exactly. have the attribution. Yeah, 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 precisely, precisely. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, so let's see. So, but then in bad news... Oh, we got all um, bad news. Yeah, we're, this is, yeah, get ready for steal yourself, because we got to... Yeah, just uh, move, everybody move to your bunker right now and uh, <laughs> wrap yourself in a blanket. Yeah, so, so first piece of bad news is this uh, article I found um, that described how... Uh, so, you know... The, in cybersecurity, big buzzword, and one of the big things about cybersecurity is like the critical infrastructure, right? So how does the government make sure that like power plants, which are owned by private companies, how do we make sure that they stay secure because we have a national interest in making sure that that stuff, you know, sticks around? Um, and so the solution to this is is often, you know, like threat sharing, right? So the FBI learns that there is an attack coming or whatever, then they can share that information with the private sector and vice versa. Private sector sees some kind of pattern of behavior, they should have a way of, of sharing that information with the, 
you know, law enforcement agencies and, and so forth, um, which is fine as far as it goes. But uh, obviously everyone's a little bit reticent about um, basically handing over their dirty laundry to the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to this article, they were right to be worried about this because uh, it, it describes in detail um, both kind of the mechanics and like legally how the government has basically closed the loop between the intelligence agencies and DHS. So through this like patchwork of regulation and law, um, they have figured out a way to take like threat information that comes up from private sector. It runs up through kind of a habit trail of bureaucracy and ends up at the NSA, um, where it can then be exploited for, uh, for surveillance purposes. Um, so I don't know. I read this. I, you know, I got to kind of take them at their word because I don't have, you know, we don't have any special knowledge about this. All I know is like what's written in the article, but it certainly looked really plausible and uh, really obnoxious, like and totally corrosive to the stated purpose of the effort, which is like to actually make everybody more secure. And the irony is that um, instead of making things more secure, it's obviously making them less secure because it's making them vulnerable to exploitation. Yeah. So that's depressing. That's depressing. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I finished that article, I clicked over to the next article, which was about OPM. This has been in the news a lot lately. Um, really catastrophically bad, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just so every, everybody that, uh, I guess it's limited to government employees and, uh, where like their, uh, a lot of their data got leaked as far as like the SFA six forms, which I don't know if anybody's ever filled one out lately, but it's basically, um, you're opening up your kimono as far as all mm-hmm. the places that you lived, um, any law violations you've had, any associations with uh, radical elements. That you're basically laying everything mm-hmm. bare uh, to the government. And uh, um, they uh, uh, let that stuff slip. Whoops. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so... You know, basically in one fell swoop seemed to make 2 million people blackmail targets. So that was fun. Um, and yeah. so, but then, uh, you know how they found this vulnerability, right, Dave? Uh, it was probably the DHS, uh, that, that vulnerability sharing thing, right? Yeah, it turns out that didn't work. Uh, uh, actually, the way they found it was they had invited a vendor in, um, and the vendor was selling uh, network security gear, and mm-hmm. they invited the vendor to plug that security gear into their production network for a demo. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so as far as I know, that should be a fireable offense, um, and very probably a felony, but there you have it. Um, they did it and, uh, and the, uh, sure enough, the vendor discovered, uh, that, uh, not only was it happening right as they were doing the demo, but it had been happening for probably like over a year. Yeah. Um, so, well, to be clear here, it wasn't the vendor software that like created a backdoor or anything that it's a vendor software that discovered the, yes, the, that's the right. so security software vendor, plugged in their software, did it on a live network to do a demo, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're being hacked. Um, so did they close the sale? <laughs> Great question, yeah. Well, And what made me suspicious about that story is, like, I, I don't know a software security vendor on the planet who'd be able to keep their mouth shut if that was their, if that was their software, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be calling from the, from the highest mountaintop. You would be screaming about how your software was the one that found this vulnerability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then it was, and then the testimony in front of Congress this week was just like appalling. Uh, so they have like 47 systems of records, or like 47 like big deal IT systems at OPM. 11 of them are run by OPM. The other 36, yes, 36 are uh, owned by contractors. Mm-hmm. Uh, guess how many of them uh, had not passed uh, security muster uh, in the last, like, I think it was like last 10 years? How many? 11, the yeah. 11 that OPM, the, the 11 that OPM were responsible for, those were the ones that had been consistently called out as vulnerable by like IG reports and stuff like that. And guess how much of the personal information that was exfiltrated resided on those 11 systems? 65%. 65% of the personal data had been vulnerable, known vulnerable, like called out by, by inspectors general vulnerable uh, for years and years and years, and nobody did anything about it. Hmm. So by them, did they call it out publicly? And did that create an, op, uh, an incentive for people to go in and get that data? 
Uh, that's a good, that's a fair question. Um, well, the IG reports are, for as far as I know, they're they're public. They probably don't go into much detail about what right. was broken, but um, the IG report would probably say something like, "Hey, this is probably pretty vulnerable, and you ought to fix it," um, mm -hmm. without getting into specifics. Um, but just like it's, I don't know what they're doing over there except stepping on rakes and slipping on banana peels. Um, it's just yep. like it's like a romper room over there. There's no, um, uh, they're they're not. Uh getting uh, carpal tunnel syndrome by plugging in their smart card. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's right. not that's a whole right. lot of two-factor authentication going on either, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Um, oh, yeah, and then uh, uh, so of the 36 systems that they had outsourced to private contractors, some of them, those, some of those private contractors uh, resided in, can you guess? Uber. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, uh, a certain number of their contractors who had root access to these systems uh, lived and worked in China. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm just like, I, it, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. Like, if, if I told somebody that an agency was being operated in this way, they would think that I was exaggerating for effect. Yeah. Um, and we're nowhere near done with figuring out all the things that are wrong uh, with these guys. Um, and yeah. so, you know, normally I don't like... Uh, it, normally I don't like throwing eggs at an agency or, um, you know, a pillorying, uh, someone because they made a mistake and they end up on the front page of the Washington post. I think that's like, I, I don't care for that. But in this case, this is so egregious and the incompetence yes. is like so obvious. Um, people deserve to be fired at least. Yep. Right. If not actually thrown in jail, uh, for yeah. like criminal negligence, this is just terrible. Anyway, speaking of criminal negligence, I, here's a fun fact. Uh, credit card readers, right? Like the little uh, terminals uh, with the that are hooked up to the telephone cable on the cash registers. Um, guess how many of those use the default password? Ninety percent. Ninety percent. And that's why I'm building a cabin in the hill country. Yep. Yep. I'm just checking out. I'm checking out. I'm, I'm fed up. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Red Hat Summit next week, and then I'm gonna buy some canned goods, and I'm gonna go build a cabin uh, out in Bastrop. Mm -hmm. That's my yep. plan. So anyway, so obviously, you know, leaving default passwords on is, I mean, that is like OPM level dumb. Um, but uh, in case you're feeling uh, smug because you're, you're, you're smarter than that, you have, a, you have a totally opaque password or very complicated password and you're using SSH keys, right? Um, mm -hmm. you're, feeling, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself. Um, but pay attention. Um, Debian, uh, between 2006 and 2008, uh, if you generated your SSH key on a Debian machine uh, between 2006 and 2008, uh, your key is actually vulnerable. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I, I think there was a there was a there was there was something wrong with I think it was the random like the number random number generator. Number generator. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so the key is actually guessable, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, uh, by the way, footnote: um, This is why FIPS 142 certification is important because FIPS 142 certification uh, makes sure that like random number generators function properly, um, and so you should be using RHEL and not Debian. But uh, <laughs> so the, so for a lot of people, this was like an, maybe a non-event. Maybe they weren't paying attention back in 2006, 2008. Um, but David, can you can you guess where like a what is like the, a really big and really interesting database of public of, of public PGP, uh, SSH keys. Where, where would that, where would that live? Oh, GitHub. GitHub. And yeah, exactly. OPM. So OPM probably has a nice one. <laughs> That's right. And so, um, so basically what attackers were doing is they were going through GitHub and looking for, uh, vulnerable SSH keys and then exploiting them. Um, and so being able, basically being able to, uh, identify victims, um, using, uh, using GitHub, which is really super clever. And so anyway, public service announcement, if you, uh, have one of your SSH keys or, uh, one of your SSH keys generated like that, you should probably redo it. And by the way, you should probably be refreshing your SSH key a little more frequently than, um, you know, once every 10 years. Yes. Yeah. How often do you do it? Uh, I got a little note in my, uh, in my one password, uh, to, uh, to, to redo it. I think it's every, yeah, every two years. I think mm. that's right. I think that's right. Um, I do, I, I, there is, I do something stupid though, which is that I, I leave the expiration date to like an impossibly far date in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I don't trust myself 
to remember to refresh it and refresh all the machines. Um, yes. And so I don't want to like have a ticking time bomb in two years and then suddenly have servers denied to me, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I'm a little bit, I'm sloppy that way. Mm -hmm. I'm sloppy that way. Yeah. Um, but you use LastPass, right? Yeah, it's impenetrable. <laughs> no, no, they got the they got some OPM on them uh, this week, didn't they? <laughs> they stepped in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. They. Uh, yeah. So. Um, so the thing here is that, uh, and you know, they did the right thing. They announced that, hey, um, looks like we got hacked. And but the thing is, is that it looked like they got the hashes of the uh, passwords and the binary blobs of the password files, um, but not necessarily like people's passwords. So it's not as bad as people are saying. And the thing is, is that you, and, and they're assaulted hashes. Mm -hmm. So the things you want to do is change your LastPass password. Um, and the other thing you want to do is make sure you're using multi-factor authentication. Um, and, and the last thing too is don't use duplicate passwords across multiple sites. So you may have your LastPass password being the same as like some other website that got hacked and people could use that to uh, get unlock your entire uh, password database. So like keep them all separate. Right. And that's just, and like you said, that's just good hygiene, right? Those are, mm -hmm. those are good rules to follow anyway. And I read some commentary from some kind of, you know, smart security folks. And in fact, I think Bruce Schneier might even have said so that like this LastPass hack is actually like a textbook of how you want it to go. Um, mm -hmm. because LastPass had so many kind of layers of protection in place. They had like a well thought through system so that even though this one, even though they were able to compromise a portion of the system, it didn't, it wasn't like game over for every LastPass customer, which is great. Yeah. And they, they didn't hide. They came, they stepped up and, and said, mm -hmm. Hey, look, we, we, we were, uh, you know, this happened and you know, so that's okay. You know, they had the data encrypted too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unlike right. other exactly. people that had like SF86 forms unencrypted <laughs> right <laughs> right um and but did you hear the reason why they didn't encrypt the data no they're like well it's impossible to encrypt the data we, we weren't able to encrypt these sf86s because our system is written in cobol mm. wow well they could have written some encryption in cobol yeah that's right and as long as it was a fips 142 certified yeah yeah that's right um so let's see and it, and then also simultaneously, there's this uh, there's this kind of encryption war brewing right between government and and industry. Um, and so, Google I think was encrypting Android phones by default. Apple doing the same. Um, and now Apple also stepped up its game on its uh, passcodes, right? Yep. Yeah. So I, I noticed that uh, for iOS nine, uh, the newer iPhones and iPads are instead of having a, a four digit password, they're making it six or more uh, digits. Which I'm, I wonder if that's good or bad news because you think about the distracted driving where people are driving around and, and it's distracting enough for them to unlock their phones while they're driving that for them to enter a six-digit password is going to make it more dangerous. And, and I say that as a, a motorcyclist that sees all kind of distracted drivers um, that's, and it scares the heck out of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so that's one feature I like about the, new, the Android um, yeah is the uh is those is that smart lock feature um yep. where you can tell android to don't bother me with a key with typing something on a keypad if uh if you're connected to like such and such a bluetooth headset right mm -hmm. um it's like if i'm in the car because i'm a safe driver if i'm in the car i'm wearing the bluetooth headset right yep. um and so uh since I'm always wearing the headset in the car, um, I tell Android that when you see the headset connected to you, don't bother prompting for the pin because it's me because yep. it's my headset. Um, and so that's actually a nice, that's a nice feature, which kind of gets around the, um, you know, complex password problem uh, when you're driving. Yep. But I wonder how many distracted drivers, like the pedestrian, well, I don't want to say pedestrian, but the pedestrian computer user uh, would know how to do that. Yeah, like, probably. Do they even know yeah. how to pair a, the Bluetooth to their car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, great point. Great point. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there was another thing that happened. I guess some some good things that, that happened this week from a security standpoint. And there was something that happened in April, and I don't know how we missed it. Um, one of the one of the congressmen, I, I guess there was uh, a couple congressmen that actually have computer science degrees. There's like four of them. Um, huh. uh in the House of Representatives. So um, Ted Lieu um, 
he, you know, basically he went off about this whole, like, you know, the whole backdoor, government needs a backdoor to be getting into things. Um, one of the quotes that he said um, whenever uh, that, that he, he was saying is that, it's clear to me that creating a pathway for decryption for only good guys is technically stupid. You just can't do that, he said, um, underscoring that he found uh, the the um, the district attorney for Suffolk County, Massachusetts, uh, his remarks as offensive. Which is great. Which is great. I mean, yeah. that guy. Yes, this is why we need more computer scientists in Congress, um, because you know technology is policy, and if you don't understand this stuff, you can make some serious mistakes. Um, yeah, because this guy got Conley. I mean, it, it really was offensive. He was basically saying, like, if you want to encrypt your data, um, he throws you in a bucket along with, like, you know, rapists and murderers and stuff like that. It was really obnoxious. Like, he was totally, like, fear baiting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I could read one more quote. Um, mm -hmm. He was asked to explain the technologically stupid comment, which, you know, anybody could say in a soundbite, right? Um, but he, he actually did back it up with some well-thought words, and I'll read them here. Uh, backdoors create unnecessary vulner, uh, create an unnecessary, unnecessary vulnerability to otherwise secure systems that can be exploited by bad actors. Uh, backdoors are also problematic because once a government asks for a special treatment, then other governments with fewer civil liberties protections will start asking for special treatment. In addition, computer code is neutral and unthinking. It cannot tell if the person typing on the keyboard uh, trying to access private data is the FBI director, a hacker, or the leader of Hamas, as long as that person has a cryptographic key or the unlocking code. The view that computer backdoors can only be used by good guys reflects a lack of understanding of basic computer technology. Attaboy. Attaboy. That's great. Yeah. yeah amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, and on this on this topic of like the encryption wars, uh, our vice president of public policy, Mark Bohannon, um, recently posted something up on opensource.com. Yep. With yeah. with uh, some of his thoughts about the subject, which is great, which is great. So there's a link to that in the show notes. Yep. Yep. And and you saw it. Well, we actually have a public sector CIO of the week this week. All right. Who is it? Uh, Tony Scott. Nice. The 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 head guy. The the head CIO. Yeah. Yep. US CIO. So he's ordering all .gov websites to uh, require encrypted connections, which is very different from what the Department of Justice, Justice is pushing uh, from for its citizens. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, and it's a, you know I saw a lot of like a lot of people you know pulling the hypocrite card um, on the when the when this news came out. Um, but actually, I think this is a wonderful example of like a government can actually doesn't have to act as kind of a single monolith. Like different parts of the government can be advocating for different courses of action. And that's actually what's so wonderful. Like we don't have a dictatorship. We have many people trying to solve problems in different ways. And um, anyway, I, I think it's a great idea uh, to be encrypting all this, um, all this web traffic. Um, it, uh, it's got a bunch of, uh, has a <clears throat> encrypting all this web traffic is great. Uh, it allows people to um, more anonymously look for government services, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, because not everybody needs to know how frequently I check the National Institute for Health's entry on chlamydia, right? Like, nobody mm -hmm. needs to know that. Um, I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, people people registering for, you know, potentially embarrassing government services, like, you know, whatever, some welfare assistance or, I don't know, school lunches or anything like that. SF-86s. Um, SF-86s, just mm -hmm. so. Um, and... Uh, it sets a uh, and it sets a norm, right? And before we talked about uh, the folks at uh, Mozilla and the folks at uh, Google making Chrome and Firefox um, flag insecure web traffic as like basically as a problem, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to notifying you when it's good. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is this is kind of a move of the norms, you know, towards uh, stuff should just be encrypted by default, which makes a lot of yeah. sense to me. Yeah. So it's, I wonder if they're ever going to put a dashboard together so you could see how well they're doing. Uh, indeed, they did. In fact, the folks at 18F, who we referred to earlier, um, they put together a dashboard where you can actually check the uh, SSL health, or I guess the TLS health, um, mm -hmm. of, uh, of all the government websites, um, which is great, which is great. And it's a, and a kind of an interesting way to implement policy, too, right? Um, you know, kind of like put out the order, um, and instead of crossing your fingers and hoping that agencies will comply, uh, you create a, uh, an easy way to measure compliance um, so yeah. that uh, it becomes easier to celebrate uh, successes and uh, shame those who are, who are lacking behind. Um, I think yeah. it's great. Well, and yeah, I think the shame angle will help too. And uh, um, 
that'll give attackers a good idea of who to who to target too. It's, yeah, it's yeah, nice. That's right. You know, yeah, just exactly. aim for the bottom yeah. and just and and the other part is it uh, if you look at that dashboard, it doesn't just say whether they're using TLS or not. It 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 reports on um, the grade of uh, the letter grade they give them as far as uh, the the quality of the encryption algorithms that they're using. Yep. 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 Which is uh, which is also great. Which is also great. It reflects a really sophisticated understanding of the problem too. Um, it's not just like is the is the lock green? Okay, great. You're compliant. Um, it's uh, like they actually go down into like which algorithms they're going to use and stuff like that. And there's a great write up uh, from the folks at 18F who wrote Pulse um, on a, on how to become compliant, um, which mm -hmm. is another nice way of implementing this policy. Um, not just tell people to do something, but also show them how to do it. It's great. Yep. Anyway, so Dave, next week I'm going to see you in Boston. Yeah, in person. Yeah, we're going to be at the Red Hat Summit. That's right. And uh, I think you want to try and do the kind of man-on-the-street interviews like, we, like we've done the last couple of years? Yeah, that's, I'd love to do that. We, we need to buttonhole some people. And uh, mm -hmm. we're also, you're doing a panel and I'm doing a fireside chat too, right? Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a, a bunch of customers actually on a panel um, talking about OpenStack and OpenShift and some, you know, obviously their positive experiences they've had with that, but mostly they're going to be talking about um, using the collaborative platform of open source in order to create collaborative platforms themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's a cool angle, a nice way to, and a, kind of a nice way to talk about uh, all the success everybody's having. So, and you're talking to, speaking of security, you're talking to somebody from NSA, right? Yep. Yeah, Jeff Blank. So um, one of the, the co-founders of the SCAP Security Guide, um, and and so we're going to talk to him, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, common criteria and and just uh, next generation things uh, for people, the agencies to be thinking about uh, whenever they want to do security. Cool, cool, that's great. I, I'm looking forward to it. The Red Hat Summit is a is a very special time of year, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I always have a great time when I'm up there. So um, if uh, if any of you listening uh, are up at Red Hat Summit, um, please uh, give uh, Dave and I a shout. Let us know. We'd love to meet you. Yeah, totally. So, you know, when we're up at Summit, I, I hope we run into uh, Kenny Peoples, because uh, i got to thank him for this data virtualization tutorial. Have you seen this? No. What's, what's, what's going on? So, you know, we've got the, so we know we've got this product, uh, JBoss Data Virtualization, right? Yes. Um, and it's uh, notoriously a difficult, pro, a difficult thing to describe to somebody who doesn't have the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, kind of like if, you, if, you know, if you know what you need, then you need data virtualization. But if you don't know what you need, you may not even realize that this solution exists, if that makes sense. Yes. But you may um, still have the problem. Yes, right. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, Kenny wrote this like really, really great, uh, very approachable tutorial on data virtualization and how it works and kind of what it can do for you. Um, mm -hmm. I was just really impressed with it. And it's up there free for nothing. Um, there's a link to it in the show notes. Um, so if uh, you don't have a good idea about what data virtualization might mean or what it could do for you, um, definitely we're spending time with uh, Kenny's tutorial. It was great. It was great. Speaking of time, um, mm. I got a good way that you could spend 1,000 hours a year. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what is it? Yeah. So if you have an RHCE uh, or higher, um, you can get on to Revelo and use uh, their, they basically have uh, like a nested virtualization. So you could do like uh, RHEL OpenStack platform on top of uh, Revelo, which runs on top of AWS or Google. Um, so you could use that to uh, brush up your skills for like if you want to take a, um, an RHC exam or, or, or training for OpenStack or OpenShift. And so there's all, all kind of compute uh, cycles up there that you could use uh, to, to sharpen your uh, Red Hat software skills. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that Revelo service is really is really very cool. Um, it's actually run by a bunch of uh, ex Red Hatters, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, it makes it really easy to train on stuff that otherwise you would have to like buy your own rack of hardware in order to play with it, right? So like, yeah. instead of installing OpenStack in your basement, you can actually install OpenStack in AWS, which is kind of mind bending and pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yep. Um, speaking of mind bending, did you see this cola uh, cola cola? project yeah what's what's going on with that so here's an effort uh some red hat folks are, are undertaking is uh they've taken OpenStack, which as you know is like a portfolio of like many different software components that are all wired together um mm -hmm. so these guys uh have containerized OpenStack, which then allows you to provision OpenStack or like s deploy OpenStack on top of kubernetes okay 
And then you could run Kubernetes on top of OpenStack. Of that. Exactly. It turtles all the way down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was, I, I thought it was really cool, like almost like a proof of concept for this notion of like Kubernetes being kind of the one orchestration kind of scheduling layer for all of your hardware resources mm-hmm. um, so that you could basically put whatever you wanted onto it. Like a lot of people think about Kubernetes as a way of orchestrating like a web app, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just nice to be reminded that, no, it doesn't have to be a web app. It can be any workload at all, right? As long as you can uh, describe it in a way that yep. Kubernetes understands, Kubernetes will then know what to do with it, which I thought was really neat. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, but if I ran into problems with my OpenStack provisioned on top of Kubernetes, on top of OpenStack, inside a Docker container, on top of AWS, uh, yeah. what, what is the, what's the first thing that Red Hat support would ask me to do? Uh, run the SOS report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Run an SOS report. So Robin pointed us to this XSOS tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dave, I don't know if you when the last time you ran an SOS report was, but um, it creates a bunch of stuff, right? It's yeah. just like this huge tarball of like everything support could possibly need to know about the machine that was having the problem. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, XSOS is, I guess, like a front end to this, um, which like colorizes the output and allows you to like print out summaries of some of the vital system information. It looks super great. And I really wish I had that when I was going after my RHCE. Um, So yeah, XSOS, uh, there's a link to that in the show notes. You'll find it on the customer portal. Very cool. So Dave, who's who's customer number one at Red Hat? Uh, Red Hat. Yep. We love yeah. drinking our own champagne, um, and uh, the the Red Hat uh, Red Hat IT folks actually did a great kind of case study of how they're using OpenShift internally. Um, and I think it, I was surprised at like how many applications we have running. There's something like four thousand applications, and like uh, uh, like eight hundred of them are in production or something like that. Uh, and it was like I was surprised. Um, I mean, I knew we used it. I didn't know we used it so extensively. Um, but yeah, a really nice write up on uh, kind of how they did it and some of the challenges they had, how they got over them. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> really nice case study, Red Hat, talking about Red Hat. Yeah, and we do a lot of that stuff at the summit too of talking about how we uh, drink our own champagne as well. Uh, speaking of OpenShift, so one of the most common requests we get is for uh, OpenShift running on uh, like a FedRAMP or like a FedRAMP approved OpenShift. And uh, just recently, the folks at BlackMash, um, mm-hmm. uh, they, got a FedRAMP, they got FedRAMP approval for OpenShift running on Red Hat's OpenStack. Oh, that's awesome. It is awesome. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. It's great. Yep. Yep. So congratulations, Black uh, Black Mesh. Nicely done. Nicely yep. done. Gunnar, do you run into the situation where it's like, oh, you hear about this cool podcast episode, but you don't feel like subscribing to the whole podcast feed to just get that one episode? Yeah. Yeah. Daily. Yep. Yep. I have this problem. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you go to later.fm, so L-A-T-R dot F-M, um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty neat interface where um, you could just go, there's a bookmarklet that you could use. And if you find this audio file or whatever, um, you, you can basically add it to later.fm and it'll create an RSS feed for you. So whenever you um, synchronize your podcast uh, application with that RSS feed, it'll just pull down that individual episode. So it's like super slick and really easy to use. Oh, right on. Oh, that sounds, that sounds super handy. Yeah. That's great. Um, you know what I learned this week uh, from uh, Jim Wildman? Yeah. Uh, that uh, you can actually be thrown in jail for deleting your browser history. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. In fact, then actually, the, obviously, the story is a little bit more complicated than that. But, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's a, deleting your browser history can be construed as uh, disposing of uh, like material evidence. Huh. huh. Is yeah. that... It, like in general, or is it a matter of like the cops are breaking your door down and you're Uber and you're trying to destroy evidence? And <laughs> yes. would that be, is that where they're, they're picking it out? Or is that just like anytime you delete your browser history, it's like future crime sort of thing? Oh, well, no, I think it's, it's, it's pretty context dependent. Um, yeah. But the, but the kind of, as a legal question, it's kind of interesting, right? Because, you know, courts are going to have to decide exactly that question right like was mm-hmm. this just like routine browser hygiene or was this person like intentionally disposing of evidence yeah. yes kind of interesting yeah um let's see speaking of sneaking around did you read that article about the russian trolling agency no no i there's an agency of trolls that are yeah. russians 
Yes. So, you know, famously, you know, Russia has a, has a kind of a sophisticated media operation. Um, and one of the things that they like the least is uh, the amount of uh, free discussion on the Internet. So yeah. how do you fix that? Uh, well, in Russia's case, you fix that by poisoning uh, comment and forums. Um, so they have kind of vicious nationalists, uh, trolls, basically mean people um, making... Uh, you know, making public internet forum, public discussion forums, just making them uninhabitable. Um, hmm. And, you know, incidentally, also, you know, kind of advancing a Russian cause. Um, and they do this uh, all through, you know, pseudonyms and like assumed identities and stuff like that. So each person inside the agency will, you know, be handling, you know, five or six uh, totally synthetic people, right, that are just mm -hmm. made up out of whole cloth. And um, they're all linked together, right, so that they don't look like, you know, just like isolated robots. Um, so like they'll have a live journal and they'll have Twitter and Facebook and, and all this other stuff. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, you should read the article. It's fascinating. This reporter, like, tried to learn more about the agency. He flew to Moscow. Um, and there's this great kind of cloak and dagger, John le Carré story behind like this investigation that he was doing. I won't ruin the end of it. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I read this article and I've been kind of on the lookout for like, oh, well, you know, how common are these? Like, can I find one? And just yesterday, uh, I actually found one of them um, on Twitter. Uh, there was an article about, uh, let's see, I think it was something in the Ukraine. And this guy with like, a pretty unassuming kind of first name and last name. It was like John Smith or something like that. Suddenly was like, had some very passionate ideas about Putin. Right. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's a little strange. And so I clicked through and I was like, Oh, this guy, he's a DJ from California. And here he's like tweeting about like horoscopes and how he's a cancer and all this other stuff. And, uh, and then kind of apropos nothing, he's suddenly like going off on somebody about how Putin is the greatest leader uh, in, uh, in world history. And I was like, oh my God, I found one of them. This is one of the guys. Like I know, what, you know, <laughs> I just read an article about this. Um, anyway, super interesting, super interesting. So I recommend everybody read this article about the Russian trolls. Wow, that's, that's really interesting how you compare that to say like in China, how they just like block that or you know send you to a labor camp or something if, if you're you get out of line where um, mm -hmm. I guess in Russia they don't stop you overtly but they they will try to silence you through more noise and uh, uh, astroturfing and stuff like that yeah exactly exactly so it's a, it's a, you could say it's an embrace extend and extinguish right mm -hmm. hmm. yeah exactly so I got another reading recommendation there was a great uh, there was a great article kind of interview with uh, Mark Little um, mm -hmm. from the Red Hat middleware team, um, and, you know, uh, doyen of, uh, of the developer world. Um, and so Mark had some great stuff to say about, uh, the kind of all the hype around microservices, um, and, uh, kind of exactly how, uh, how excited or how panicked people should be about this notion of microservices. Anyway, some like very strong thinking, some very level-headed, um, just sound advice, uh, from Mark. And I recommend that everybody, uh, everybody go check that out. Mm. Yes, totally. All right, Dave. Well, I got to go pack for Summit. Yep, yep. Me too. Me too. And I, I got to brush my teeth and everything. So, uh, so <laughs> if for people to get all these show notes uh, and hear about uh, Uber and their GPSs and, and stuff like that, where where do we need to send them? Uh, they should go to uh, HTTPS because uh, we abide by the OMB mandates. Uh, HTTPS colon slash slash dgshow dot org. Uh, it's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner. Show dot org. Nice. Okay. Well, well, thanks, Gunnar, and thanks, everybody, for listening. All right. Thanks, everyone.